Acts chapter 8. Last week, we began a brand new section in the book of Acts. Uh, For the first seven chapters of Acts, the gospel was spreading, but primarily in Jerusalem. The thousands of people who trusted in Jesus were there as the the one local church that existed in the world. Uh, They were regularly gathering together, ministering to one another and to the community around them. But the Jewish leadership opposed this church, opposed this Jesus movement, and ultimately even put to death one Christian minister, Stephen, charging him with blasphemy. And that led to a great persecution that broke out against these Christians living in Jerusalem. So these Christians who had been assembling together in Jerusalem, living in Jerusalem, were scattered. They were Uh, uprooted from their homes. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But as we saw last week, this scattering was part of God's sovereign plan. Through these scattered disciples displaced from their homes, the gospel spread to more and more places and to more and more different types of people. We saw the gospel come to Samaria last week, and we're going to See the gospel spread to, um, to another unlikely uh, convert today in Acts 8, verses 26 through 40. So with that, uh, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to read Acts 8, 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When we began our series, our journey as a church through the book of Acts, 
I mentioned that the traditional title of this book is the Acts of the Apostles. Because the main characters at first glance seem to be Jesus' apostles. But that's not quite right. Some have seen the prominence of the Holy Spirit in Acts, such as in our passage today, and suggested the title should really be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't really tell the whole story either. Uh, When we see, for instance, uh, that Luke intends for Acts to be understood as Jesus continuing his ministry from heaven through his disciples on earth, well, then we might think the title ought to be the Acts of the Risen and Ascended Lord Jesus. But there's more to it than even that. Throughout Acts, we see that the events that are unfolding in the life of the early church are part of God the Father's sovereign, eternal plan of redemption. So maybe we should call this the Acts of God the Father. But I think uh, Daryl Bach has given a title that, while wordy, sums it up best. The Acts of the Sovereign God through the Lord Messiah Jesus by His Spirit on behalf of the way. Remember that? I think that'll stick. It's a lot of words, but they're important words. Because this really does sum up what we're dealing with when it comes to the book of Acts. The book of Acts reveals to us a sovereign God. A God who is carrying out deliberately, beautifully, powerfully, meticulously his eternal plan. And... The book of Acts reveals to us the Lord Messiah Jesus, the fulfillment of Scripture, who continues his work as his disciples preach and act in his powerful name. And the book of Acts reveals to us God the Spirit, sent by God the Father and God the Son to empower Jesus' disciples, to guide the mission of the church, to empower with his presence. So the point in saying all that is this. Acts reveals to us a big God. A big, sovereign, wise, powerful, triune God who is at work in the world. And this is the God who is revealed in our text today. You know, it's tempting to approach a passage of Scripture and jump straight to the question, what does this mean for me? And that's a great question to ask. After all, we want to be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. But we need to remember that although Scripture is profitable to teach us and to train us, Scripture is not primarily about us. Scripture is first and foremost meant to reveal to us a big, sovereign, wise, powerful, triune God who is at work in his world. So as we walk through our text today, I want you to see that that is what Luke is intending to show us. Primarily, that even though there are humans acting in this story, The main character, the main actor in this story is God himself. And specifically in our text today, we're going to see God's sovereign invitation to an outcast. God's sovereign invitation 
to an outcast. Let's get into the text. So as we walk through this text, we're going to see God's sovereign instruction to his messenger, God's sovereign message from his word, and God's sovereign conversion of an outcast. First of all, God's sovereign instruction to his messenger. Our story begins with God's direction. Look at verse 26 again. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So an angel of the Lord, a messenger from God, comes to Philip with a message from God. Right out of the gate, we see who the main actor is in this story. This story is happening because God takes action to send his angel to Philip. God is directing Philip's ministry. God is orchestrating the conversion of the eunuch. But even more than that, God is writing the next chapter in his unfolding drama of salvation. Well, so what was this message that God gave to Philip through the angel? Go. Go to the road that's between Jerusalem and Gaza. So uh, Gaza was south of Jerusalem. It was uh, the last watering hole on the way from Jerusalem to Egypt. So it was a key stopping point. It was a key route from Jerusalem to Gaza. Why did God send Philip there? Philip didn't know, but Philip went. Look at verses 27 and 28. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Well, so why did the Lord send Philip to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza? Because there was a traveler on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza that God wanted Philip to encounter. The traveler was an Ethiopian. He was apparently the chief financial officer in Ethiopia. It's part of the court of the queen. And as was often the case with someone who worked very closely with the queen, he was a eunuch. The Ethiopian had come to Jerusalem to worship and were told that he was reading the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, so what we can discern from this is he was what is referred to as a God-fearer. So while this Ethiopian was ethnically a Gentile, he was still within the religious circle of Judaism. He didn't have the same status as a full Jew, however. First, his ethnicity uh, kept him from having equal status with ethnic Jews. But second, the fact that he was a eunuch prevented him from being able to enter the assembly of the people of God. So he was able to worship Yahweh, but he was still an outsider, even in the realm of Judaism. Well, so the eunuch was traveling, he was reading, and when Philip finally caught up to him, Philip sees this man. Again, Philip doesn't know who he's looking for, so the Holy Spirit gives him his next instruction. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. That word join literally means be glued. Go, go stick to that chariot. And Philip obeys. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. Well, what a coincidence. 
uh, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So the Holy Spirit has orchestrated a perfect encounter. On the one hand, you have Philip, a faithful minister of the gospel, who engages the eunuch in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And then on the other hand, you have this eunuch with a heart prepared to receive the gospel, eager to be taught the meaning of the Spirit-inspired scriptures. And that leads us to God's sovereign message from his word. So we saw God's sovereign instruction to his messenger as he directs the ministry of Philip. And now we come to God's sovereign message from his word. It was no coincidence what he was reading. Let's look at verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. In the providence of God, this Ethiopian eunuch could not have been reading a more perfect passage of Scripture. This portion of Isaiah comes from what we know as Isaiah 53. And this section of Isaiah is all about God's promised redemption that would come through his suffering servant. But the eunuch didn't understand the passage. So verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Because before the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, it wasn't clear to the Jews who received and read Isaiah what exactly these verses were about, who they were about. And so this question then gave Philip the perfect opportunity to tell the eunuch about Jesus. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, which is a key ingredient to all evangelism, opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. From these words that the Holy Spirit inspired centuries before, Philip told the eunuch about Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of these verses from Isaiah. Philip got to tell the eunuch that Jesus was the Lord's servant, the one who would be slaughtered like a lamb. And Jesus' death was unjust. Justice was denied him because he was executed even though he was innocent. But he opened not his mouth. Why? Because his life wasn't being taken from him. He was laying it down of his own accord. He did it on purpose because he was dying as a substitute for sinners. Philip preaches Jesus as the fulfillment of this passage of Scripture. And Philip obviously preached Jesus from these verses that, speci- that Luke specifically lists here. But I don't think Philip stopped there. After all, Luke said that Philip was only beginning with this scripture. I think we can be pretty confident that after Philip preached Jesus from Isaiah 53, he kept scrolling on to Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55 and 
especially Isaiah 56. It was all in the same section that the Ethiopian was reading from. And in Isaiah 56, there was something that this Ethiopian eunuch needed to hear from Isaiah. It was something that he needed to hear. Turn with me to Isaiah 56. As I said, in the providence of God, the section of Isaiah that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from was about God's promised redemption that would come through his servant. And God's future salvation that he was promising would come had a number of amazing promises. He had a number of amazing promises about a kind of salvation that was unlike anything he had done before. There would be new grace, new redemption that would come through God's servant, the Messiah. He would usher in a new era of salvation that would change the world. Read with me, starting in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God promised a day of redemption in which not only would Jews be saved, but people from every nation of the world would be saved. God promised a day of salvation which would not be just for insiders, but for outsiders and outcasts too, even eunuchs. And did you notice that that promise was not that foreigners and outcasts would receive equal status as sons and daughters of Abraham? The promise was that in this new day of salvation, eunuchs who belong to the people of God would have a better name than son or daughter. Well, why is it that the name that they would have in this new covenant that God would usher in, why was this going to be better than sons and daughters? Well, because in the new work of salvation that God has now accomplished in Jesus, the people who are saved are not just part of the people of God. They're not just in the assembly. We are in Christ. God himself, the Son of God. We're not just part of a group we're united to Jesus by faith. 
And in Christ, we receive his righteousness. In Christ, we receive adoption as sons and daughters. In Christ, our old self is buried. And in Christ, we're raised to walk in newness of life. Those who are saved by Jesus receive a better name than son or daughter because we are saved in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And anyone, Jew, Gentile, insider, outsider, eunuch, outcast, unclean, foreigner, anyone can be saved in the name of Jesus and become included in the family of God with a name better than son or daughter. So you see, as salvation comes to this Ethiopian eunuch, this is more than just a story about the Holy Spirit leading Philip, although it is. It's a story that's more than just about God's sovereignty and intervening to save this eunuch, although it is that. In this story, God is showing us how he is continuing to carry out his eternal plan of salvation. He's at work guiding the process, leading his messengers, and keeping his promises and getting his good news to those who need to hear it. Well, finally, as the story concludes, we see God's sovereign conversion of an outcast. God sovereignly instructed the messenger, Philip, to go. God sovereignly placed the message in the word that he wanted this eunuch to hear. And finally, God's sovereign conversion of an outcast. After hearing Philip preach Jesus from Isaiah, the Ethiopian eunuch responds in verse 36. And as they were going Along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So the eunuch heard the gospel, and he placed his faith in Jesus to save him from his sins. So he asked to do what all believers do when they trust in Jesus. He asked if he could profess his faith in baptism. But notice how he asks. He says, What prevents me from being baptized? You know, I've read that in the past. And I thought that it was just a way of asking to be baptized. But think about what the eunuch's experience of being part of God's covenant, being within God's covenant had been up to this point. As a eunuch, he was not welcome in the assembly of the people of God. Before this moment, he had every reason to think that he would be prevented from being baptized, prevented from entering into the people of God. But because of the good news of what Jesus accomplished, as Isaiah wrote, Philip could look at that Ethiopian eunuch and say, Brother, nothing prevents you from being baptized. You can come in to the people of God and have equal status with every person who places their faith in Jesus. You can have a better name than son or daughter. Verse 38. He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, I need to pause for a moment and address something. I'm going to give you the short version, so if you have more questions, you can ask me afterward. But if you're reading the ESV, uh, like me, or another modern translation, you're, you'll notice the verse numbers go straight from 36 to 38. And verse 37 is a footnote. 
what's that about? Well, don't worry. <laughs> uh, the word, so the words of verse 37 are only in a few of the ancient Greek manuscripts of Acts and only in uh, manuscripts from one particular geographical area. The majority of manuscripts uh, do not include the, uh, these words. And so it appears that the words of verse 37 were not actually part of the original text of Acts, but were added later. So in modern translations like the ESV, those uh, words are placed in a footnote, so you'd know what they are, uh, but you'd also know that they probably weren't part of the original based on the best evidence that we have. So that's the short answer. Um, and, uh, you may have more questions, and I'm happy to talk more about that, but I just didn't want to let that go unaddressed in case you were like, wait, did, did somebody cut something out of my Bible? Like, no, no, it's, everything's fine. Uh, and please let me know if you have any further questions about, uh, about that. Well, let's, uh, let's finish our passage. Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So after Philip had served the Lord's purpose, the Spirit carried him away. What does that look like? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it was something supernatural. Uh, it was something uh, that Philip didn't even really, he just, he found himself in Azotus, like, oh, here I am. I guess I'll keep preaching the gospel. Um, so in some supernatural fashion, the Holy Spirit transported Philip to Azotus. And the eunuch didn't see Philip anymore, but that didn't bother him. Because he was too busy rejoicing in his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it didn't seem to bother Philip either. Because he just kept on doing what he had already been doing. He just kept on preaching the gospel. Well, okay, so we've seen revealed in this text a big, sovereign, wise, powerful, triune God at work in the world. He's the main character of this story and every story in Scripture. As I mentioned at the beginning, the Bible is not primarily about us. Primarily, this text and every text shows us the great God of the universe. It's critical to our understanding of Scripture that we recognize that, that fact, that it is not about us, that it is about God. Because if we don't recognize that, well, we might read a passage like this and think that it is trying to prescribe when it's actually trying to describe. We have to make sure we know the difference between passages that are prescriptive and descriptive. And by prescriptive, I mean reading a text as if it were saying, you should expect what happened in this story to happen in your life. It's a prescription for you to imitate. By descriptive, I mean reading a text as if it were saying, this happened. And it's important that you know that it happened but you shouldn't necessarily expect what happened in the story to happen exactly this way in your life. It, it's a description of an event that happened. So prescribing, you must do this, versus describing, this happened. And because the Bible is primarily about God, there's many stories, like our text today, that are primarily descriptive in nature. 
This passage is meant to describe God's work in the world so that we would see who he is. So we would see his eternal plan coming to fruition. So see his hand at work guiding this situation that happened. This passage is not trying to prescribe everything that it records. It's not trying to prescribe that we would expect all of these things. I mean, after all, there's a whole lot of things that happen in this story that we have no reason to expect whatever happened to us. We shouldn't expect that God is going to send an angel to us with a message from God. Could he? Yeah. But we shouldn't expect that that's going to be a regular part of life. It was describing a one-time event. Uh, We shouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to give us verbal instructions in the same manner. Uh, We shouldn't expect that every person we share the gospel with will have their Bible open to a passage on Jesus' sacrificial death. We shouldn't expect every evangelism encounter to go so well that the person immediately begs us to be baptized. We shouldn't expect to be supernaturally transported from one city to another. But, as I said from the beginning, Scripture is, all Scripture is, profitable to teach us and to train us. So then, what can we learn from this story? What do we do with this? I mean, after all, God is at work in the world. He's still at work. This same God is at work today. He is sovereignly unfolding his plan. He was sovereignly unfolding his plan then. He's sovereignly unfolding his plan today. And we want to be used in carrying out his plan. We want to be part of his story, his unfolding drama of salvation. So what do we do? If we want to be used by God like Philip as part of his unfolding story of salvation, well, just consider the example of Philip. What what did Philip actually do? All he did was just stay faithful. He just stayed faithful. Before verse 26, he was just preaching the gospel. Then an angel of the Lord said, go there. Philip said, all right, I'll preach there. The Holy Spirit said, talk to that man. And Philip said, all right, I'll preach the gospel to that man. God had sovereignly had the eunuch in Isaiah. And Philip said, all right. I'll preach Jesus from this text. God sovereignly converted the eunuch. And Philip said, all right, I'll baptize you. Then the Holy Spirit supernaturally carried him away to a new place. And what did Philip do? Just kept preaching the gospel. Just kept doing what he was already doing. God was supernaturally intervening. God was powerfully working. God was sovereignly directing. Philip just stayed faithful. One foot in front of another. And it was his faithfulness, his simple, obedient faithfulness to what God had told him to do. That was what God used. It was through that that God used him as part of his unfolding sovereign story of salvation. So how can we be faithful like Philip? Well, we saw in the text God's sovereign instruction to his messenger. We can be faithful like Philip. If we faithfully obey God's instructions. Faithfully obey God's instructions. So again, while it is true, we should not expect the Holy Spirit to give us personal verbal instructions like he did to Philip. We still have instructions from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit inspired the words 
of this Bible. We do not need further instructions. If we did, God would have given them to us. God has a plan, a sovereign plan, an intricate plan. It will include twists and turns that we can't see coming, but we don't need to see any of that coming. We don't need to know any of that. We just need to stay faithful to what he has called us to do in the way he has called us to do it, whenever and wherever and however he may direct us. For example, let me give you some verbal instructions from the mouth of Jesus written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you're waiting for a message from God, here is the word of God for you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Don't wait for God to tell you to share the gospel with someone. He already told you. Do it. Don't wait on God to tell you to make disciples. He already told you. And here's one that we need to consider deeply and seriously. Don't wait on God to tell you to go. The word has already come out of Jesus' mouth. Go. We don't need a sign. We don't need a police. We don't need a light on the road to Damascus. If you don't understand that reference, come back next week. Jesus already told us to go. So be faithful to obey God's sovereign instruction and trust God with the details of the sovereign plan. We saw in our text God's sovereign message from his word. And we can be faithful like Philip if we faithfully speak God's word. Faithfully speak God's word. So first we saw faithfully obey God's instructions. But next, faithfully speak God's word. One of the things that we see in our text today is the centrality of Scripture when it comes to telling someone about Jesus. All Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it is all about Jesus. And God's Word is powerful to reveal Jesus. And not only is it powerful, it is essential. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's not our words that people need in order to come to faith in Christ. People need to hear the word of Christ. And that is really freeing when you think about it, because it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on my perfect verbal presentation. It's not dependent on my strategy of speaking. It is dependent on the word. Just Give them the word. Of course, while it is freeing, it also leaves us with a responsibility. We need to know the word. Practically speaking, how can we arm ourselves to be able to preach Jesus from the Bible like Philip did? 
well, practically speaking, identify some key passages about the gospel, like Isaiah 53, like Ephesians 2, like John 3, like Romans 3, and memorize them. If you have a weak memory, write down the passages in the back of your Bible. Keep them with you so that you're ready and armed at any moment to talk about Jesus from his word. Be prepared to be faithful, to speak God's word, knowing that as you do, you are resting on God's sovereign message from his word that has power to save. Lastly, we saw in our text God's sovereign conversion of an outcast. We can be faithful like Philip by faithfully loving the outcast. Faithfully love the outcast. We saw God reveal himself in the text today. And the God who revealed himself in this passage is the God who loves the outcast. God had an eternal plan to bring outsiders in. And through faith in Jesus to give them a higher status than son or daughter. He has given to people all who trust in him. Jew, Gentile, insider, outsider. People from all nations, all languages, all ethnicities, all religious backgrounds, genders, physical capabilities. The gospel is for everyone. You know, in this section in which the gospel is spreading to Samaria, it seems appropriate to recall the story of the Good Samaritan. A lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus told the story of a man who was robbed, stripped, beaten, left for dead, priest and a Levi both saw the man, passed him by. But a Samaritan came by and saw the man and had compassion on him, loving the man who was different from him, loving the man who was in need, loving the man who had been rejected, loving the man who had been overlooked. And Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And what was Jesus' response? You go and do likewise. He had, the lawyer had asked, who was my neighbor? But Jesus didn't answer that question. He told him, you go and be a neighbor. But, but notice, who was it? Who was a neighbor? A Samaritan. An outcast was the neighbor. An outcast was the one showing mercy to the one who had been overlooked. Well, perhaps in our desire to be faithful, to love the outcast, we first need to remember that we were all outcasts. We were all separated from God. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As we look at those who seem to be outcasts, outsiders, those whom we might be tempted to overlook, those who we think might be outside the reach of God's salvation, or who, if they were included, might be in a lower tier of salvation than some of the rest of us. Remember, 
we were outcasts. We were alienated. We were far from God. But we were reconciled. Jesus' death is powerful enough to make anyone holy and blameless and above reproach before God. No one is outside the reach of God's salvation. So let's love the outcast as those who were outcasts who have been sovereignly converted by a merciful God. Well, again, we've seen today a big, sovereign, wise, powerful, triune God at work in the world. He is carrying out his story of salvation and he invites us to be a part of it. So may we stay faithful and hang on for the ride of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the words of Scripture. Lord, I pray that our response to your revelation would be humbling ourselves before you. Lord, that we would remember that we were alienated and reconciled to you. And Lord, that that gospel would drive us to be faithful to you, faithful to obey your word, faithful to share your word, faithful to love even the outcast. Lord, I pray that we would focus on what you have called us to and just stay faithful. And Lord, trust you with your sovereign plan to work all things together for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.